you're about to listen to another episode of What the Hell Just Happened. Join Paul Edwards and his guests as they discuss and sometimes even solve some interesting HR problems. And I'm going to go off the rails sometimes and talk about whatever I want. My guest today is Dr. Ed Prather. I know him as Ed. He's a good friend of mine. He's a professor in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Arizona. Of course, Tucson and the University of Arizona are located in the same place. He's the executive director of the Center for Astronomy Education. I am just uh, super pleased to have Ed here today. We're going to talk about astronomy and science and, and all sorts of great things. I hope you enjoy today's show. Okay, Ed, um, you and I were sitting at the house chatting, and uh, and we were just talking about the kind of, well, the first thing was about the pictures that everybody's showing about the James Webb Telescope. Yeah. And, uh, and the pictures are cool, but you expressed some frustration around that because the, the telescope is so much more than these pictures that it's producing. Now, I think the pictures are interesting, and I think we're going to talk about some cool stuff about how sure. this telescope yeah. works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can, okay, so. You want me to kind of dig in my frustration? Yeah, would you dig in your okay, frustration? So, so, you know, my area, as you mentioned, you know, prior is in science and science education. Yep. And, you know, some of the work that my PhD students and I have been working on is to try to figure out how to help the students in my class who are, who are essentially non-science majors, the general right. public in their last science course in life, mm-hmm. understand the role of science in society. Right. And the great risk in having a NASA administrator or these spokespeople for the James Webb mission or anybody who's sort of peddling the images on right. the internet and in social media, talk about inspiring and beautiful and awe, yeah. suggests that it's an art project to me. And that, that's, that's a big problem if your goal, my goal, and yeah. others like myself are trying to help the, the public understand the role of science in society isn't to create pretty pictures, but right. to discover unknown unknowns. This is a really big deal. We're discoverers. We're trying to find the limits of what's possible to know. And it's not so that we can take a picture of it. It's so that it could lead to deeper understandings about the natural world. And those deeper understandings, as I just said, are unknown unknowns. We don't necessarily even know what we're going to find. Sometimes they're known unknowns. We're going to find more of things that we need to know more about. But in any result that comes from that, there's another kind of tier of, of goal that comes with this, which is it could improve our quality of life. It could improve our ability to exist on this planet and in this universe because it will reveal the laws of nature. And all of what has taken us from the stone ages through the dark ages, and then suddenly to now, this, is, this incredible civilization we live in has right. come from discoveries in science. And the James Webb Space Telescope is gonna collect information about a part of the history of the universe that has never been seen, and it has implications to our understanding of the natural world and our lives. Right. And that isn't being conveyed. And that, that to me is a huge opportunity missed by the science community and especially the James Webb community in how they're sharing what is coming out of the science instrument, the telescope, yeah. and what it's possible for the public to understand. Because frankly, we have to beg for the money. Right. And if the public thinks we're on an art project, we've, we've made a mistake. Right. I'm going to unpack what you just said a, l- a little bit more. What this telescope is doing has a real application, 
has real applications to real world solutions to problems that are going on. Ed, when I grew up in the 70s and the, and the 80s, it was kind of a normal thing to say, you know, this thing came from a NASA project. This, yeah, this yeah. thing that you can do now, yeah, that yeah. this is something that they did in, in the space program. So I've actually seen things happen in space and then get applied back to yeah. uh, back to real life. I, I, I used to give a talk about this, and this is going to get a little funky. But, it's okay. Um, I would make an analogy that if we're 1900-ish, yeah, your use of technology at home was mm -hmm. an outhouse. Got it. Right? But you know what? We were discovering that all of matter is comprised of something called an atom. Oh, yeah. And we were just in science probing matter to uh -huh. find out what are the properties of this thing right. that you can't actually touch, feel. You can only observe how it behaves, sort of. And that tells you its physical parameters and laws and characteristics. Right. Meanwhile, the public is using an outhouse. Right. That chasm between your lived experience of technology, mm -hmm. an outhouse in 1900, and our understanding of the atom, how did that science community who was developing an understanding of matter and energy and quantum mechanics right. convey that to the public? It was almost impossible. That chasm's so large. We're living in that exact same moment right now, except the outhouse right now uh -huh. is your cell phone. Right. You take it for granted. It's not even, the things that are in that are Nobel prizes from the last hundred years. Right. Packed in that thing. Packed into the cell And you cell take phone. them for granted and it just has less poo on it. Right. But I'm trying to say what James W. JWST uh, is going to find and is, uh -huh. is set to discover is like the atom. Right. In that you can't, once you find its properties, it's not like in real time, you uh -huh. can say, and here's all the things that will happen over the next hundred years. Right. We, it's you discovery. Don't yeah, you don't know. And so when you say there are going to be things that spin off, it was easier in NASA's time. This mm -hmm. is a new kind of battery or motor or drink or mm -hmm. hydration system or what, but this is fundamental science. So one of the things I said to my students in my class is, at the end of the semester, as things go on, I point to the, on the wall in my classroom, there's a periodic table of elements. And I tell them, those are the atoms we know about. Turns out that's very little of what the universe actually is. Right. And JWST is gonna help us better understand where it all comes from and how it all got to this point and what might exist beyond what is on that periodic table of elements. So the amount of unknown unknowns is huge. And this is what makes science exciting to scientists is discovery. And so that's being lost, I think, in part of what's happening. I think it really, yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's being completely lost. I mean, to the point where they're, they're comparing pictures, that the, the photographs that this one's taking with photographs that Hubble took. Like, oh saying, gosh, what? don't we have a prettier, better camera? Yeah, we have yeah. a better camera. Yeah. It's about taking better pictures of the same things. I, yeah. I also think that um, by, you know, kind of talking about how important this work is in discovery also is what draws young people into this conversation and gets them excited about STEM, gets them excited to learn about the sciences. Um, and on the other side of it, it gets folks like me to tell my congressman, yeah, vote for that. Yeah. Put more money yeah. into it. I feel good about I feel good about spending money in NASA. This is the first time in a long time since the space shuttle. And again, in that, we were talking about um, putting a mechanical thing into the air over and over and over again. You know, Paul, you're hitting on something that I also bring up that I think is really interesting, and I don't think we talk enough about this. Our push 
to go to the moon yeah. wasn't a discovery mission. Right. It was happening because of the Cold War. Yeah, we were It was competing. chosen as one of the things we could have put congressional money towards, yeah. and it was deemed that'll be the one that will inspire the public the most. Right. And it was done because we had a nemesis. Yeah. Which is a real bummer to think we could only get the, I mean, the whole country the, yeah. was behind this. Like, we're going to do this. And they were into science more than ever right then at that, that kind of moment in time. Yeah. I think we could resurrect a common goal of science in the country now without having to erect a nemesis. Yeah. And it could be based on challenges that we have mm -hmm. or opportunities that we have yep. through science. And I think you're hitting on that. You could help young people see, and, and I think there's never been a better time, the current crop of young people are very empathetic. They're very tuned in to what is going on in the world uh, that is not fantastic. So maybe the nemesis, if you will, is their desire to help change where we're at now to where we could be. And showing them that this is a pathway to make that happen is an important thing that we need to be doing with science. One of the fields that does this well is health and medicine. They do this really well. Right. They've been marketing this for, you know, we're going to cure this, we're going to solve that. And it's, that, very, it's very obviously tangible right. to your existence. Yeah. Or this thing that's billions of light years away, you're like, what the hell does that have to do with it? Yeah. You know, it's a little bigger challenge, which I like. I enjoy that challenge, but it's a hard sell sometimes. It, it, yeah, it, it's a hard sell. Yeah. So I want to put this in a very specific and practical way. Let's just use climate change as an example for something that needs to be solved. And I'm hearing two arguments. We have to stop doing things the way we're doing them, burn less of this, use more of that. It's, it's a very present thing that we have to do. The other side of the argument I'm hearing is the solution to um, some of the problems with climate change is technology. And innovation. That, and it's not here yet. And, and, and moreover, uh, to win an argument in this society, which is so strongly based on free market. Yeah, and, yeah. It's also an economic opportunity. Uh, we could innovate a new world of technologies yeah. that the world needs yeah. and profit from it. Yeah. Just like we did other things that were tech-based in the last 20 years that have turned into the things we all are playing with that are app-based. Right. You know, um, so... You know, we need a revolution in battery mm -hmm. and energy density storage. We, right. need, we need revolutions in a whole bunch of different things. We need infrastructure that could be developed um, at a different scale factor and cost that could be disseminated around the world. There's all sorts of things. You know, mm -hmm. this, this leads to the idea also that what if we shifted from a, this is a different societal thing, you know, the, the right. nature of trying to push people into college for some reason versus pushing people into trades that might be more about climate. Yeah. You know, what is the new version of electric electrician and what is the new version of machinist and what is the new version of, that all have to do with solving different problems that our society is really facing? I, I have lots of beliefs about this. Yeah. I've had a PhD student that we've done research on this. Um, I wrote my first paper about the greenhouse effect in the early 90s where yeah. I argued, oh my God, what are we going to do as a society? Mm -hmm. And the first papers written about this are over 100 years old. Scientists were writing about the nature of how the atmosphere interacts with infrared light from the planet the greenhouse effect yeah. a long time ago and making the predictions of today. Science has been on this, but politicians, business, everybody hasn't been on the same page about a lot of deniers. This is all part of what I do for research. Right. And, you know, I want to make one thing clear. The earth doesn't care. Right. Earth's fine. 
Earth could care less. It'll just like move around some energy here and there. There'll be some different storms here and there. There'll be some erosion, some dirt will move here and there. Some coastlines yeah. will change. There'll be some changes. There'll yeah. be some inner like, I'm good. I'll be fine. I'll come to a new, new equilibrium down the road and then another one after that and another one after that. But we are very sensitive creatures to change. And we may not, and all of the fuzzy little creatures we love, and all the and mammals, the food, and the and food the, web, yeah, and all that. That's yeah. the so so really. I, I I hate to get really kind of scientific. Um, no, not scientific. Yeah, rough on everybody. But the real problem is there's just too many of us. Yeah, that's really the only problem is population size and what we're doing and how we how we're sustain how yeah. we're sustaining this population and the and and there's some great there's a wonderful TED talk. I wish I could remember the guy's name. I'm going to say Lars. Olson or something like that, who does an amazing talk to show how we are destined to have about 11 billion people on this planet. It's coming and we can't stop it. Right. The number of people that are currently on the earth will produce that much next. That's our only problem right now is how do we deal with that? You know, And it's all energy, food production, transport, all of those things, heating. It's all an energy and, problem. And, and, and I prefer to think that, I prefer to think coming full circle back that some of what we may learn in space now, the way we're learning it with this telescope, is going to have an impact on that. Or um, other fields will be the ones that dominate it. But, yeah. but I'll give you a for instance. Maybe the energy density storage thing comes out of something. Or maybe the transport of energy, uh -huh. a.e. light and information, will, will be emboldened by it. Because we are developing different ways to transport data for this mission, for instance. Yeah. You know, there's all sorts of... Whether the spinoffs come immediately or 50 years from now are not easy to know. But if you if you're not a if I don't want to be in the country mm -hmm. that isn't trying that isn't trying yeah I don't want to become a service industry country where all we do is a call center and we don't make anything. I, I want to stay yeah. in the place where we're at the edge of discovery and helping and using that to help what is possible to do and prosperity and ending of suffering. That would be amazing to me yeah. to stay a country like that. Yeah. And you know, that starts with uh, folks like you who are teaching teachers to teach the subject that yeah. we're talking yeah. about here and, and teaching future politicians to yeah. understand this is a, their obligation and lawyers and business leaders yeah. and parents and taxpayers and voters. I tell them this in my class, like that, this is a class to brainwash you yeah. into understanding that you're a citizen who has all of these different obligations in society, whether you kind of have come to realize it or not as a person who just left high school a few months ago, you know, in your last science course in life. Right. Yeah. So you teach freshmen, right? Non-science major freshmen. Non-science major freshmen. So they're obligated to take some science course. Oh, and they, they kind of look at the buffet. You. And they and they're get like, stuck with you. Yeah, I like I'm like, it. I could take physics and chemistry and uh -huh. astronomy. Uh-huh. Isn't that astrology? I'm just, you know, you I never don't. know why they're in my class, but it sounds better than most of them. Yeah. And they walk in and don't realize it's astrophysics. Yeah. That's what astronomy is. But yeah. that doesn't mean I'm doing the same thing I do in a physics class. Of course not. You know? Right. Or a major's astronomy course. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a class engineered, cultivated for that population explicitly. Like it, they're going to encounter the astronomy that I believe is, has the most um, relevance to them appreciating what science does and what astronomy is doing. It mm -hmm. has the most impact on affecting their worldview so that science becomes a, a, a thing that is of value and merit in their worldview. So for, uh, uh, for our one listener, we have, we have one listener for the podcast. Um, for our one listener, uh, every now and then, Ed will come in and we'll be talking, maybe having a beer. 
and he'll say, uh, let me try this out on you because I'm going to introduce this concept to my students and I want to see if you can yeah, get it right. right. So right. I think what Ed's saying is if you can understand it, then anybody can understand it, Paul. And, and just so you know, Paul's not the only one I do this to, yeah, but yeah. he's a good, he's one of my favorite samples. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, Ed explained to me um, something about the web telescope that was very unique about it, which was its use of infrared. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that right. spectrum. And I, and I want you to talk about it, but I want to okay. share something with you, Ed. Okay. You explained it to me, and then I tried explaining it to other people. Nice. And then when I couldn't get it quite right, I went in and started kind of, uh, uh, re, you know, I started studying it, finding some resources on it. So the other day, I'm in a Reddit, uh, in the science subreddit. Oh, yeah, okay. And somebody says something about the, um, I think they called it near-red or something in, like that. Uh, Near-infrared or mid-infrared, yeah. Yeah, something like yep. that. And then um, I saw a guy correct a guy and say, no, this is what it means. And yep. then another guy came in. Oh, by the way, when I read the first guy's correction, I went, oh, he didn't get it right. Uh, and then another guy came in and corrected the first guy. And I thought to myself, he didn't get it right either. And then a third guy, because you guys are all scientists in there, a third guy came in and re-explained it over the top of the two of them. And I went, is that you, Ed? Because <laughs> I, so you do such a good job that I actually, I may not be a great teacher of the subject of, of that particular theory that, you know, how that works, but... I was able to recognize um, that it didn't work, and now I'm vested. I mean, well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, one of the things is to plant a sliver yeah. that you can't stop itching. Right? Yeah. It just infests that's you. That's science, right? And, and that's yeah. curiosity. Yeah. You know, that's passion. That's des there's a inside all of us is this inherent desire to want to know things. And sometimes it's gossip and stuff that has no value, really, but we can't help it. Mm -hmm. I want people to feel that way about the natural world. I want them to kind of feel that way about astronomy being the vehicle that is helping us understand yeah. everything beyond Earth. And I want to make that interesting and, and important. Everything beyond Earth is actually everything. Because Earth is really nothing in comparison right. to the universe. And there's only one field that's trying to discover everything beyond Earth, and that's astronomy. And I, want, I think that's an inspiring, if you will, way to kind of think about why we would want to do this. Right. You can only learn so much about how the entire physical world works by studying Earth and what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And so that idea that you kind of went, you know, you were like, wait a minute, that's not exactly how Ed and I were talking about it before. Right. If I can plant a, a rich enough, still complex enough, but easily understandable seed inside of you where you feel like, I feel like it, I, I could almost reproduce that narrative if yeah. I had to. Yeah, yeah. You kind of hold on to it. You don't just let it go. It's not over your head. You kind of got stuck going, God dang it, I kind of get that, don't I? Well, that's the game. That's the game in education. Can I give you a game to play yeah. where you can feel successful? Because if I can do that, I can give you a harder game to play right, right after it. And I can level up. To you being at the level in my class, I told them, you're going to be at the level at the end of the semester. Where you're doing this same, you know, eight-step piece of reasoning yeah. that we are doing in the science of this discipline. You're right. just not doing it all with math. That's the only real difference. And if I can do that with you, then when you go home and somebody at the dinner table says something and you get to share it with grandma and auntie and dad and everybody's there, they're going to go, huh, maybe those couple of dollars we spent sending you to school haven't been worthless. Yeah, yeah. And you become an ambassador of science. So that's my goal. It's that, to create ambassadors. So that is that is really uh, an amazing and awesome way to be. Like that is a great purpose in life. I, it's the one that helped me sustain this career. Yeah, yeah. I could have done a lot of things. Yeah, and I 
kind of found that the currency that filled my soul happened in that classroom. Yeah. All of a sudden I was like, oh, I could do this. I, I was going to, nope, I'm going to do this. Being a teacher and being with the, and in particular in classes with the public rather mm -hmm. than majors has been my career. Right. And I, it's absolutely what I needed to find to be able to do the hard work so that it's comes your with purpose. this. It's my purpose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, if this was missing, it would be a big missing for you. Oh, I would be looking for something and I don't have another direction I really want to go other than racing cars and motorcycles. And that's frankly not going to be my career. <laughs> Ed, how, I know you wish. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ed, how many students do you think you've um, taught? Probably on the order of 6,000. Okay, so I'm going to say the other thing that would be missing if you weren't doing this would be that those 6,000 students didn't get this conversation exactly the way that you can give this conversation with the, the kind of passion that you do. And that's part of purpose. Like, you know, bringing this full circle, when a business has to define what its purpose is, one of the things that has to, um, you have to ask yourself is what would my community be like if my business wasn't here on Monday all of a sudden? Mm, mm. What would be missing from the world? That's where chill bumps come from. The, right. That's what, that's to me what matters. I, I share at the start, of the, to normalize my class, yeah. to create a safe and inclusive environment, to help them feel an obligation to showing up all of that stuff really matters to the active learning environment I'm going to create because it's not lecture. Right. I don't lecture. Right. I might have 300 students and we're going to work in small groups every day in class. So right. I have to get them on board with that version of the game. Mm -hmm. And so I'm extremely vulnerable. I tell them I'm a first generation college student. I started at a community college while I was a crane mechanic for a living mm -hmm. that I did not take to science and math easily. I had to start in a class that started with fractions and decimals mm -hmm. um, and that I struggled pretty much the whole way to PhD. Right. It was never easy. And and that I'm very sensitive to where they're at often as, you know, we have a lot of veterans on campus. Many of them are Hispanic students who are also first generation like I was. You know, there's a lot of different aspects of me letting them know I'm, I was vulnerable. I feel like I'm an imp imposter the whole time I do this for a living. Right, right. Um, and that I really care about them. That uh -huh. My whole purpose in doing this is to help them. I don't have another agenda. I want all of them to get an AFI if they right, could. Right. And, and that, and that um, the research I share with them is to demonstrate that if you do these things every day in class, you guys are going to know more astronomy than almost anybody on the planet. Right. And that I care about, um, my passion is doing this. I'm not being twisted by some other set of rules the university has to have to teach. Mm -hmm. This is my number one thing I right. want to do. So you have my full attention and, and I'll be here every day working as hard as I can. And I think all of that matters to the success of the class and the way in which they interpret why they're there and what, what's possible to do in that space together. And I hear at my end of the semester evaluations, pretty amazing things at times, you know, like this is yeah. one of the few classes I took here where I really felt like X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So being as a business owner, working with, you know, customers, my, the other group of people I work with are university faculty mm -hmm. who've never been taught how to teach. Right. And, never, could, and I run workshops on how do you do what I do in the classroom for yeah. faculty. I just left doing it last weekend. And that's the other population that I try to do all these same kinds of things was to help them evolve their beliefs mm -hmm. about their role in the classroom and what's possible to do with their students. So like a business owner who has clients, understanding Empl them. Employees. It, yeah. it, okay, so if I take that and kind of transcend it back to the business world, when 
If an owner has the kind of passion and understanding of their purpose that you were able to just express, and by the way, Ed, that is, it didn't just come out on day one. This is something that's involved in you. Oh, an yeah. understanding yeah. of yeah. where you are and to be able to articulate it is, yeah. not, very, yeah. is not very easy to do. Yeah. It takes a while. You have to keep working on it. And it, but the benefits are so big when you are inspired and you understand where you are and what your role is. And you care about the people and deeply. You, and that's deeply. one of the big things that we try to say when we give presentations. We try to stop for a minute and say, care about the people. Yeah, you care, care about the people that work around you. And if you'd like for them to follow you, give them an understanding of what their purpose is, what your mission is, what your vision is. Share the successes. Share the successes. All of it. Be all, transparent, be yeah. vulnerable, all yeah. of it. All of it. Vulnerability yeah. is another big is another big deal. Yeah. We, we could get into that. So, Ed. Um, you want to hear some JWST stuff? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Give, me, give, me, give us some. This is what we're going to use to kind of go to end the podcast. Give okay. Us, give us some. Well, I mean, the thing that we were talking about that I think is really interesting. Um. So it, it, there's a lot of layers to this. I got to figure out where we want to start. Yeah. When you look at the sun in the sky right now, okay. uh, that's not the sun. That's the light that left the sun eight minutes ago. Gotcha. You're not seeing the sun in real time. If something changed on the sun. Eight minutes later, you would know. You wouldn't see it for eight minutes. Yeah. That's the sun eight minutes ago. Because light, traveling at the speed of light, still takes eight minutes to get from the sun to here. Well, what does that mean then if you go further away? Like in the Milky Way galaxy, all the stars you see at night are nearby stars in the Milky Way galaxy, yeah. not in our solar system, because right. the sun's the only star in our solar system. There's about 100 billion, and I'm sorry, in astronomy, it's like all the numbers are ridiculous, Ever. 100 billion stars in this thing called the Milky Way galaxy. Okay. Most of them have planets. We know that now. Okay. And we're just in one of those solar systems, a star with its planets. You look out in the sky, those are all just different stars with their own solar systems around them, and they're all light years away, light years, yeah, tens of light years, hundreds of light years, thousands of light years. Uh -huh. That means those stars that you see in the sky, you're seeing what they looked like a year ago. No, a hundred years ago, a thousand years a ago. A million years ago? Now you, not in our galaxy. Not now yet. if you okay. want to get to millions uh -huh. scale, and I'm glad that you want to leave kind of hundreds and thousands, yeah. the next scale is millions. Uh -huh. That's the nearby galaxy, not our galaxy, a mm -hmm. neighboring galaxy, Andromeda. Looks a lot like our galaxy, we think. Right. Two and a half million light years away. So any time we're looking at Andromeda, we're seeing what it was doing two and a half million years ago. Telescopes are time machines mm -hmm. that can look backwards into time. Right. That's all they can do, actually. Mm -hmm. They have to do that. They don't have a choice. We never get to see the now. We only get to see the past. And we take an image of it. So we have a snapshot mm -hmm. of the past. Okay, if you want to know what happened in the universe before then, you got to look further away. So that you're looking at something whose light took even longer to get to here. And right. now you're going to see even further back in time. Now there's a problem that goes with this. Every time you look further away, the objects get dimmer. Just like in your life. Right, right. So now you've got a double problem. You're like, okay, I can only see the past. I'm going to live with that. But that's actually kind of cool. That means I could see earlier in the universe and stack times together yep. and make a storybook of what the universe has been doing over time. But if I want to see the earlier times, I got to build a telescope that's capable of seeing what was going on earlier in time. That means it's got to be a bit really sensitive, like the amazing camera. 
Right. They can see really dim things. Well, it turns out one of the ways we do that is by building bigger and bigger and bigger mirrors. Yeah, yeah. JWST is 18 mirrors in a honeycomb shape to make one big mirror. Right. In space. And that has its own advantages. So in, on Christmas Day, it was launched in 20... Oh, gosh, I, remember, I can't remember the exact date. Uh, so it's 2021 Christmas Day, it's launched. Right. And it arrives at this place orbiting... The, uh, the Earth and Sun called a Lagrangian point. It's a special place in space where if you do the gravitational calculations and you park something there, it will orbit with the Earth around the Sun and just stay in that spot. It won't get, it, it, it can, it's its own unique location. Won't get closer to Earth, won't get closer to the Sun. It'll, it's make, a its dead own, spot. it'll make its own orbit around the Sun. It's, and what's amazing about that is if you point it away, nothing of the Earth and the Moon or any of that are shining on it, so you don't get any of that. It's in the shadow of those objects. And right. it can be, you can position it such that uh, if you ever look at a picture of the JWST, it has this big wedge-shaped base to it. Yeah, yeah. That's a shield to shield it from the sun. Oh, so I didn't know that. So it can look that. out in space anytime it wants to ah. and observe all over the place. So it's a space telescope at a Lagrangian point, which is right. amazing and cool. Especially if you're a physics geek like me, you're like, that's amazing and cool. Now, that means it can peer into space for a long time. It doesn't orbit the Earth and keep moving all the time. It can sit there and look at that same spot in space that it wants to look at. For that means it's not blasting through space. It's no, not it's not moving, moving like that. Not, yeah. It can continuously be looking at the same spot in space for a long time, and that means it can hold its camera lens, if you will, open for open a long time. For, uh, now I can uh, get a r- whole bunch of photons mm-hmm. from something unbelievably dim, and if I watch it for long enough, it'll start to appear in my camera. Right. So now I'm going to get to the deep end of the pond here. So we get to nearby galaxies a million light years away. Uh-huh. Most distant galaxies are on the order of billions of light years away. So you're seeing th- the age of the universe is roughly 13.5.7 billion years old. So the things that are furthest away from us are happening. The light we get from them are uh-huh. what was happening at the beginning of time. Right. We've never seen that. There's a reason this telescope, as you brought up earlier, is an infrared telescope. Yeah, I love this part. This is the trippy part. I love okay. this part. So there's another facet of the universe we have to bring into this, and that is that the universe's size is growing. Right. It's, it's expanding. expanding. I love it. What is expanding is space and time. Got it. Every object in the universe is embedded in a web uh-huh. of space and time. Space and time is a thing. It has properties, if you will. Okay. okay. And objects of mass, planets, stars, galaxies, are embedded in it. Okay. So the universe is like a big spandex dress. Oh, I like stretchy, that. And yeah. it has sequins in it. Uh-huh. But the sequins have different masses and colors and sizes, and they sink into the space and time. Gotcha. Fabric of the universe. But the fabric's growing, and that causes the sequins to be moving away from each other. Uh-huh in every possible direction. So every sequence looks out in the universe and sees every other thing, every other galaxy. Getting farther and farther away. And that makes it think it's the center. Uh-huh. But if every location thinks it's, it's the, the center, center, then there is no center. They'd be humans. Oh, sorry. So we're in a universe yeah. that is expanding. Uh-huh. Every galaxy has a unique or a, a, a special place to view from, but we all see about the same thing. That's uh-huh. part of what the rules of this are. Uh-huh. Now here's the problem. If really early in the universe, you had very first stars, very first galaxies mm-hmm. forming, and they're really in a hot environment, and they're giving off a tremendous amount of light, that light is going to be predominantly at visible wavelengths, the same wavelengths our eyes are sensitive to. That we can to, see, yeah. Because of the temperature of the objects and all that. 
That light though, now is gonna travel to us and it's gonna travel for tens of, you know, almost 12, 13 billion years. In that time, the universe was expanding the entire time. Those photons are traveling in the fabric of space and time. Okay. And the fabric is stretching. Right. That means it's taking those photons of light that were visible when they were first emitted by the object mm -hmm. in the early part of the universe's time. And it's stretching those photons wavelengths to longer and longer wavelengths. Now where we are receiving that light at JWST at the Webb Telescope, mm -hmm. those wavelengths are now infrared. The entire beginning of the universe is an infrared. Is an infrared universe. And so we now, have now. We now. Have, yeah. So if we ever wanted to see it, uh -huh. we had to tune a telescope to those wavelengths uh -huh. that we calculated the early universe's wavelengths would be now based on what we know about uh -huh. the expansion of the universe. Right. This is not a story that's possible to tell earlier in the history of humankind, even earlier 1900s. Right. This is all stuff we've come to understand in literally the last hundred years. Uh -huh. And we developed the technology to put something in space at a Lagrangian point with four instruments on a telescope made of honeycomb shaped mirrors in a dead pointed spot. away from the sun in a dead spot, tuned to the exact right frequencies of light, wavelengths of light, to see the light that left the early universe at its beginnings and has been traveling for 13 billion years. And it's gonna unlock what is the beginning. And we've been blind to it yeah. in astronomy for all time until now. That's badass. And the thing that is really amazing is it took a telescope that could sit there and stare at one spot for uh -huh. a long time to be able to see the incredibly dim amount of light that's coming to this stupid little location we're at. Right. It's so far away now. That light has been spread out for so long. We're getting just little tiny bits of the initial photons that were leaving that initial location. Right. So you have to have a telescope that's incredibly sensitive and has a very, very small field of view. This is another thing. If you hold a dime at arm's length, yeah. the thin way, not, not so you're looking at the disc, yeah, that yeah. little slit you'd make on the sky, right. if you held your arm out and made a little motion on the sky, that's the size of what James Webb looks into. A wow. little tiny slit. And when you see those images and you see them packed with galaxies yeah, and you see them able to zoom in on one galaxy and show incredible resolution, that gets us excited because that means the science we can do is going to be incredible. We're going to be able to do incredible science because we can get up close and personal to the beginning objects in the universe by having all this technology in play. Right. And it's going to unpack first stars, first galaxies, the nature of how energy, dark matter, dark energy arise in the universe. And it's going to do one other thing that I think is critical to not miss. And that is, okay, so over the last 30 years, we have done something that seems like science fiction, but it's amazing. We've been able to detect planets outside of our solar system, yeah. orbiting other stars, all of them in the Milky Way, nearby stuff, right? Uh -huh. And come to realize solar systems are common. We hoped they would be, and we're finding out they are. Yep. We know of on the order of 5,000 planets now that have been detected orbiting other stars in their own solar systems. And they aren't like our solar systems. Our solar system seems a little different in some ways to much of what we're seeing. Sometimes we see planets that are similar to ours and locations like ours, but we see crazy stuff, like the planets the size of Jupiter at the location of Mercury. Uh -huh. It shouldn't be there. Right. It's teaching us that the universe has got a lot of different ways uh -huh. it behaves than our solar system was going to teach us. 
And I work in another field called astrobiology, the search for life in the universe. Uh-huh. And what if we could detect if life is present on another planet? Just by using a telescope. Yeah, just by the light. Just to analyze. Not going there, not scooping out a chunk right. of pond no, no, scum. No, 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 no. no. Just the photons coming into a telescope. Could we know that? So one way to know if we could know that is could we even detect it here? And I bet we can. We've done research to yeah. look at the light that comes through our atmosphere. Right. Just look at the chemical composition of that light. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the chemical composition of our atmosphere revealed by light going through the atmosphere. So molecules in your atmosphere and th living things on the surface of the earth make a signature mm -hmm. in light, in infrared, that yep. says, oh, there's these kind of molecules and these kind of molecules, and they only exist in these abundances or these types if life is present. Right. So Webb had a promise, which was, we're going to look at planet atmospheres. We're such an amazing telescope. We're going to narrow down on where we know there is a planet, mm -hmm. and we're going to look at the light from the star going life through the planet's atmosphere and go, does it have the fingerprint of life on it? Yeah. That discovery is eminent. Yeah. I've been saying for 20 years in my classes, somewhere in your lifetime, you're going to have It's eminent now. Like yeah, this yeah. telescope is going to do it. And there's going to, this is my great fear. Webb's going to get an amazing image, uh, an image, a uh, piece of data, spectra yeah. uh -huh. of this fingerprint of the molecules in an atmosphere of a planet that says this only occurs in these abundances if there's life. Right. We just found evidence for life. Right. And it's going to hit the news media for 10 seconds. Right. And the public's going, oh, whatever. I don't know if I trust the scientists. Don't really know. There could be other reasons. Yeah. And, and we're going to be like, are, 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 you, are you kidding? Yeah. We just found Genesis yeah. elsewhere. We just discovered we're not alone. We didn't say we know exactly what it is, but we now have candidates for where it is. Right. And that's supposed to be amazing to human beings. I don't want us to live in a society that goes, oh, whatever. Right. And just moves on as if nothing happened. That would really break my heart. Well, but we'll see. We'll I could see. get into the, yeah, the yeah, pace yeah. of how information gets given to us and how we just and process and process and, yeah. it. And we used yeah. to talk about things for five days instead of for five minutes in, in an in a online group on Reddit for, with a bunch of strangers we don't know. But um, these are some of the promises of Web. Yeah. Right? Like it's a new eye on the universe. Uh huh. And that means the unknown unknowns are, so imagine this, you got to pitch this science mission to the funding agencies mm -hmm. based on things you know. And Your pitch is based on what you can argue we will be able to do, not what we don't know. Uh, okay, hang on a second. Yeah. Hang on a second. It's a trippy thing. This is, a, this, is a, this is one of my, again, this is another one of my favorite conversations yeah. because this wraps into mission and vision and yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. So at some point, someone decided that James Webb Telescope as a concept could be something and it would do some things. Okay, yeah, let, let me say, uh, I don't wanna, I wanna, I wanna dovetail this to another telescope really quick if I can. And say yeah. something. Okay, so. What, there's two yeah, telescopes well, no, These are two important ones to talk about. There okay. was, um, there's a thing that happens called the decadal survey in science where your discipline of science every I think, you know, decade, 10 years, argues to Congress, to funding agencies, what are the most fundamental things that should be happening in your science? And how could we accomplish that? So kind of advocating for 
of the science missions that are on the table, which ones have the most promise? Right. The two biggies from a decadal survey over 10 years ago now were James Webb mm -hmm. and another one at the time that was known as the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which has a new name, which is much better than that. Um, but it's it's the name of the observatory is now Ruben, uh, Vera C. Rubin Observatory. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it, inside of it is the Simone Telescope. And the mission is called the... Legacy Survey of Space and Time. So I still say LSST because I'm old school, but yeah. it's the Legacy Survey of Space and Time. So instead of being a space telescope, it's on a mountain and it's being built right now uh -huh. on a mountain in Chile. Instead of looking at a little tiny part of the sky, a little tiny slit, the dime. imagine yeah. putting your hand in a fist at uh -huh. arm's length and making a spot on the sky. You can fit 40 moons in that. Okay. It takes an image that size every 30 seconds. So that's Instead like of days and days or hours and hours looking at one pot, yeah. it, it goes, I'm going to hit this spot in the sky the size of the face. Right. In 30 seconds, I'm going to gather everything in the universe to 12 billion light years deep in time in a column that size. Right. And then in three to five seconds, about five seconds, it's going to go to a neighboring spot uh -huh. and do it again and go boom, boom, boom. So its field of view is wide. Uh -huh. Its cadence from location to location is fast. Uh -huh. And the amount of information it gets is really deep into the universe because it has the most powerful camera ever mm. created. Gotcha. It's the size of a Mini Cooper. Wow. And it, I don't even know how to express like That's how many... just the camera. I don't know how yeah. to express how many phones of pixels yeah. it has in it. Yeah. But if you wanted to demonstrate all the data that is in one image, it uh -huh. would take something like 400 4K telephones on the size of a basketball court. Okay. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's generating an amount of data that is sort of unheard of. It creates, gosh, what is it? It's creating um, uh, an amount of data that is 20 terabytes mm -hmm. of data per night. Wow. 500 petabytes over its 10-year mission. We have our own optical fiber network of cables going from Chile to the U.S., where is it? Just for that telescope. Where does it terminate? In a national data center in Illinois. Wow. It is the most data. It is producing more data than all of astronomy in small periods of time. Mm -hmm. It's going to over... And what it's going to do is it's going to map the entire sky mm -hmm. every three to four days. And then it's going to do it again. And then it's going to do it again. And then it's going to do it again wow. for 10 years. We've never seen many of the places that are important in astronomy more than once or twice. It's right. gonna do it every couple nights over a wavelength regime that goes from infrared through all of visible into uh -huh. part of um, ultraviolet. Because it has six different filters that it uses to say, I'm sampling this, and when it comes back to the location, it's like, oh, last time I did the infrared, now I'm gonna do the blue. Last time I was blue, now I'm gonna do the red. And that means we're gonna get full color, full spectrum yeah. of the universe and go back each time. That means this is the great, important part of this mission. Yeah. That means if something changes, we see it. We get to see it. It's video. We're going to make video of the universe instead of one picture. We're going to come back and we're going to be able to stack them as images video. in time and have essentially video. Yeah. Did it move? Is there a near-Earth asteroid? We know of a couple. See, what do we know? NEOs. We know of about 28,000 near-Earth yeah. asteroids right now. It's going to up that number to over 100,000. We know of about 3,000 objects in the outer part of 
the solar system, mm-hmm. we're going to up that number to about 40,000. And that means all the little tiny objects and maybe even there's um, speculation of a planet being out there are going to be possible to observe. But more importantly, we're going to know of a million supernovas, which are used to understand distance in the universe. We're going to know about 17 billion stars, 20 billion new galaxies that we've never seen before. But also, did it change in brightness? Did it get brighter or dimmer? Because certain objects in the universe change in brightness, and mm-hmm. we've never been able to watch them over and over and over and over. Right. Did it move? Um, we're going to be able to make um, observations of things that are incredibly dim, incredibly dim, and change with time. Yeah, That's a new eye on the universe also. And both of those things have been going through approval, building, proposal lifetimes, people's lives and decades. missions, decades, decades of people's lives and missions and, you know, administrators changing at the NSF, NASA or the Department of Energy, Congress all of that, changing, Congress money, changing yeah. embargoes, Office of Management and Budget canceling this, all of that. Yeah. And I can tell you stories about other telescope missions that have been canceled and brought back to life uh-huh. over the last 20 years. It's amazing. But those two telescopes are going to revolutionize what we know about the universe. Yeah. You know, it's going to help us understand what is dark matter and dark energy. What are the beginning states of what is happening in the universe? What is in our local environment and what is the Milky Way galaxy's environment around us? What are, I could go on and on and on about the science that is going to come out of that. But both of these are a case for saying um, science is important, but it's also difficult. It takes passion. It takes planning. It takes a host, a team of people at multiple locations in universities working in concert together on scales that people don't appreciate. You Mm -hmm. know, it's just a really interesting enterprise to get to this. Yeah. We never hear that backstory. No. I mean, there are travel agents. Yeah. There are business managers. Yeah. yeah. There are HR people. Yeah. You know, each of these missions has buildings of people and, and, and multiple locations of buildings of people working in concert together in collaboration to make any of these things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Same thing that keeps these big projects running, uh, keeps small businesses running as well. I I swear, this is something that I learned later in life. I had some businesses earlier before I founded Cedar, and um, I just didn't understand what strategic planning and forward thinking and putting pen to paper. I just didn't understand what role it would play to align things and get you somewhere. And and even the crazy stuff like changing your vision. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, yeah, like yeah. What, what do you do if the funding agency says, turns out we aren't going to be able, you're going to have to rescale. Yeah. And you're like, rescale? Well, you can't res, but. You, yeah. And then you go to work. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you yeah. have to re-scope. And that means a new mission. That means a new vision. That means also, I mean, these things yeah. happen in business. And and what if a new technology comes along in the time you're planning it? And all of a sudden you're like, wow, CCD cameras have really changed since we proposed this 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and there are many there are many software companies that never launched because by the time they launched the software, it, 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 it was completely yeah, obsolete. Yeah. And so t- being able to change your, your plan and your vision, all that stuff is super important. Okay, Ed, we could go on and on. And I think I'll probably have Ed back at some, at some other time. But um, Ed, like, yeah, uh, this is, you know, this is me and Ed having a beer in front yeah, of the microphone. Yeah, this is the ba- this is the this is the back patio. Right yeah, this here. is the back patio right here. So um, there's a brown dog missing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ginger the dog's missing right now. Um, uh, okay, Ed, th- thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy. I know the students are coming back now, and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be professoring a lot more here soon. Yeah, no um, I appreciate you be sharing here. this. I yeah. appreciate you guys asking me to come. Yeah, I yeah. really do. Thanks. thanks. 
Well, I, I hope you enjoyed that episode of what the heck just happened in HR, even though it wasn't exactly directly HR related. I just want to say that, um, you know, my friend Ed is, he's had such a storied career. It includes all kinds of accolades and awards over the past decades at the University of Arizona. Um, it's no wonder he's um, so well liked there and that his classes are so sought after. You know, I believe in this principle that you're as good as the four people you spend the most time with, and Ed is one of my four people. Um, I hope he feels the same way. Um, I also want to add to that last little part there about the four people. I feel um, very fortunate that I have an extension of that, which is a lot of, not a lot, I should be careful what I say, which is all of the people who I work with. I believe that you can extend that influence beyond four people when you create um, engagement with your team and when you're all working towards um, you know, learning and solving problems and being curious together. I hope this helped you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode of What the Hell Just Happened in Space. 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 Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of What the Hell Just Happened. Do Paul a favor and share this with your network. If you have an HR issue or a question you'd like us to discuss on the show, send it to podcast at wthjusthappened.com. For more HR advice and insights from Paul and his team of experts, you can also join the private Facebook group, HR Basecamp, or visit hrbasecamp.com. Make sure you tune in next week, and remember, better workplaces make better lives. Thank you.